This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. It's all about Amazon and big tech this week. So we caught up with Brad Stone. He wrote The Everything Store. It's the definitive book on Jeff Bezos and Amazon. There was so much going on when it came to Amazon this week. Of course, there was Amazon Prime Day. There was stuff coming out of Europe in terms of regulators. Uh, And then, of course, there was this wonderful story in the magazine this week that uh, Jeff Bezos looking to kind of change the modern convenience store. Right. He's already changed the way we shop dramatically, probably permanently, Mm -hmm. to say the least. Uh, But what's he up to when it comes to Amazon Go? We're going to get into a lot with Brad Stone here, the man who literally wrote the book on Amazon. He joins us from San Francisco. So Amazon Go, go. What's going on? Well, uh, folks in a couple of cities probably know what that is. Uh, There are 13 of them now, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, and New York. They're adding them slowly. Uh, It's best described as like a convenience store where you can pick up lunch or breakfast, a a smattering of kind of grocery store items. They're small, uh, you know, not not larger than 2,000 square feet. But the big innovation and the reason why Amazon has been working on this for so long is that there are no cashiers. You, you walk in, you scan your app, you pick up whatever you want from the shelves, and you walk out as if, as if sort of you're shoplifting. And, and, and then if you look up dramatically, there are dozens and dozens of cameras that are kind of watching you and, and tracking what you do in the store to see what you're taking. And, and so you can charge, they can charge you for it. And this is Amazon's big bet to revolutionize retail. Well, talk to us about how it all works, because I was fascinated by the weighing of items, you know, people kind of moving products around if something's on the wrong shelf. Tell us how it really works. Yeah, and that's something that we, uh, my colleague Matt Day and I, were, were curious about when we started to, to research this story. You know, one thing that I, I knew just from following Amazon is that they have worked on this for an extraordinarily long time, probably longer than most companies would ever invest in an R&D project. They started this in 2012. Jeff Bezos basically told a top lieutenant of his, go and figure out a way for us to do something unique in retail. And this is what they landed on, the cashierless store. And basically, they investigated a number of ways technically to try to make it work, to remove the, the line for the checkout. They were looking at RFID chips in, in packages having customers scan barcodes, all sorts of things. And basically what they, what they landed on was a kind of combination of computer vision sensors. So there are cameras on the, on the ceilings, as I said. There are cameras behind the shelves. Um, and there are also weight sensors in the shelves so that they can kind of combine a smattering of inputs to figure out you know, what's been taken and carried away as opposed to maybe taken and put back. Uh, and then the other thing is in a small selection of cases where maybe there's some confusion the computers get confused. Uh, there are am- good old-fashioned Amazon employees, <laughs> probably contractors, looking at the footage going, did he pick up a chicken panini? Right. Uh, and, so, and so one of the big questions is, does this thing scale? You know, how big yeah. can it be? That right. sounds expensive to do. That sounds like a lot of technology, and you also still have to have people doing things. That sounds expensive to me, Brad. 
One of our sources described it as the most expensive R&D project in Amazon, Amazon history. Wow. Now, we talked to Dilip Kumar, the, the technical head of this project, and he didn't think that was right. <laughs> um, but they have spent millions and millions of dollars on it. Now, and this gets to how Amazon operates and how we should look at the ghost store, right? Currently, it's a small convenience store. But, it, you know, obviously, they're thinking about it as something much more. In fact, we're reporting that there's a, 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 a ten to 15,000 foot uh, store being worked on in Seattle in the Capitol Hill neighborhood that's about to open that's going to be a much larger version of Amazon Go. So clearly they're looking at this, you know, not necessarily to replace cashiers and Whole Foods. They, they're say, they say they're, they're not going to do that. But as a kind of lever to create a new customer experience in retail. So the Go store is kind of an experiment and a first step. And the future, as with all things Amazon, could be much larger. Well, and it's also an interesting reminder that to get to simplicity is a very complicated road. You guys do some unbelievable reporting here about you know how they built this. They built it very secretively. It had a very sort of anodyne code name. They had Bezos come in. And you have a great quote in the story that says the response was essentially, this is great. Now change everything. <laughs> what was it going to be initially? Right. Well, they went through a number of different versions. In fact, at the very beginning, it wasn't necessarily even groceries and food. They were they were wondering if they were looking at the electron an electronic store, a big general Walmart like store. Then they then they settled on groceries because people go a couple times a week, and that's where waiting in line you know can be the most inconvenient. Um, but the first the first variations of it were much larger. They had a 15,000 foot basically prototype in a warehouse and they had, you know, not only, uh, you know, the, 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 the meals that are in the go store now, but they had fruit and vegetables and cheese and coffee stations. But the problem when Bezos visited this uh, prototype in 2015 was that, you know, you're eliminating the checkout line, but you're asking customers to wait for things to be weighed like, like, like meat or fruit. Yeah. And so he said, you know, cancel all that stuff and focus on the smaller format. And so, you know, it's very Amazonian, just this long experimentation, a lot of, a lot of stops and starts, but everybody working hard over many years, you know, right. with a demanding boss to try to get to something that was unique. Well, and the potential prize, as you write in the story, it's the $12 trillion global grocery market. I mean, they want a piece of this. We think of Amazon, you know, still as this conventional online retailer, the company that, you know, changed how we shop online. And yet, as, as we look at it now, a $250 you know, billion dollar revenue company, you know, what they, what, what they do in their planning sessions is they go, well, what, how, how do we get to $500 billion? I, You know, Walmart is still much larger in terms of annual sales. How do we get to that level? You know, how do we become the biggest retailer in the world? And arguably, they're not going to do that unless they crack that 90% of all retail that happens in physical stores. So this is the journey kind of to bring Amazon to that next level of growth. Um, you know, it's it's a massively competitive and fragmented industry. Amazon's never going to own all of it, but th the ghost store is their journey to kind of figure out how to get into the biggest part of the, the global retail industry. All right. Well, it's a great reminder. This ambition is a great reminder, especially this week. Mm -hmm. uh, big tech and Amazon very much in the spotlight for a number of different reasons in Washington in Europe and on all of our computers because yeah. it was Prime Day. Let's start with Prime Day because it has become such a, for lack of a better term, thing. We all <laughs> talk about it. It's, you know, late night fodder and everything else. Remind us why it exists and what Amazon ultimately gets out of it. Right. Well, this was, I think, 
Boy, I think this was the fifth time, um, and it is it's 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 like a Christmas sales event in the summer, which itself is sort of remarkable. Amazon has taken the slowest time in the retail year, these dog days of summer, not only when people aren't buying, but where when their employees would otherwise be sort of going on vacation and taking a break. And they kind of styled it after Alibaba Singles Day, which is a holiday event in, in China, uh, you know, which, which is the biggest kind of online retailing you know, day around the world in the year. And they said, we're going to do that, but we're going to do it in this off-peak time of year in the middle of summer and just kind of have, have a selection of deals. And, you know, they, they tried it out the first year, didn't go all that well. There were, you know, there were some snafus. People thought the deals weren't all that great. And they've kind of amped it up every year. And, and this year they had a concert uh, from Taylor Swift. It was two days instead of one. Uh, but the thing that jumps out at me is how they kind of drive people. They use it to drive people into the Amazon ecosystem. So it's a huge ad for Prime Day. And then the best-selling products are all Amazon products. And so it's a way for to give people these big discounts on like Amazon Echoes and Fire tablets and to turn them into really addicted Amazon customers. And from what I understand, these Prime Day sales, these two-day sales that it top what, Black Friday and Cyber Monday? Monday, so they did fairly well? I mean, you know, they're, they're always kind of competing against themselves and, <laughs> and in a market that does go up. But yeah, they said it was, it was their, their record prime day. Uh, you know, I think it did well. You know, I told my wife, like, hey, it's prime day. She goes, great. Can we send back the instant pot that we bought last year? <laughs> so, uh, you know, so it, it's also sort of getting people to buy stuff to pursue these deals, maybe in some cases to get things that they don't want. You know, we also reported that uh, how to cancel Amazon Prime, that that search <laughs> spiked during Prime yeah. Day. So obviously a lot of people are signing up for Amazon Prime. The company heralds that. But, you know, you, ha- you do have other people that kind of game the system, sign up to get the deals, and then cancel. All right. I asked Jason this. Did, did you, Brad, buy anything on Amazon Prime Day? Yeah, I did. I did, Carol. I got swept up in all the excitement. I, you know, there are a couple of rooms where I wanted to put a little Amazon Echo Dot, so I bought uh, some of those, and then I bought a, a case for my, my laptop, which right. wasn't even on sale. But, you know, the thing about Prime Day is it gets you, at, at like Black Friday or Cyber Monday, kind of gets you into the spirit of thinking about, hmm, maybe I should make a purchase. We did the same thing at home. It's like, hey, did you check it out? It's Amazon yeah. Prime Day. It's like, who, you know. Carol bought a Stranger Things lunchbox, <laughs> but that's a whole different uh, issue. All right. So, speaking of Stranger Things, speaking of Stranger Things, kind of. uh, we headed down to Washington. Many of us uh, in the newsroom this week because big tech very much in focus. You know, Brad, mm-hmm. we're going to leverage the fact that we have you and that you oversee all of our global technology coverage. This seems to be a moment. We look up at our TV screens. Mm-hmm. We see Facebook testifying on Capitol Hill about its cryptocurrency push. What's going on with big tech in DC at the moment? There's a political environment where perhaps the only thing that both parties can agree on is that is that tech is this sort of diffuse, uh, you know, powerful force in American life that needs to be regulated. I, I don't know that there's a lot kind of more intellectual rigor to it than that. Mm-hmm. You know, the the Republicans say that uh, you know the, the the companies like Google and and Facebook are biased against conservative voices. There's really no evidence for that, but it's something that's been forwarded by the by the president. You know, on the left, the Democrats say that. 
uh, you know, tech companies have gotten too powerful and are punishing, unfairly punishing smaller companies. And for every country, uh, company, there's kind of a different argument. You know, there's this fear around Facebook's Libra, even though it hasn't really gotten off the ground yet. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's all sort of built into a distrust of Facebook based on their past mistakes, like the Cambridge Analytica scandal. You know, for Amazon, you know, the extent to which there's really kind of an argument behind it, there's a question in Washington and in Europe whether they can really um, uh, fairly be not just a massive retailer, but also a marketplace that fairly gives an opportunity to small and medium-sized mm-hmm. businesses to sell on the site often in competition with Amazon itself. And that's what, uh, you know, folks at the, at the Justice Department and in Europe and at the Antitrust Commission want to look at. And so how is all of this playing there in your backyard? What are people saying to you in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley, up in Seattle? I mean, you're sitting there at the nexus of all this. How does it play back? You know, I think in, in Silicon Valley, look, I mean, these things take a long time, right? There, there's something like $9 billion in fines that have been levied against Google by the EU. It's, it's been a years-long process, and it's tied up in, in appeals. Um, so there's not an immediate feeling that this is going to, like, change the competitive dynamic at all. Um, I think in Seattle, you know, they are, you know, Amazon has mobilized, and all the companies have mobilized, you know, their lobbying arms, they've added people in Washington and in Brussels to make an argument. And in Amazon's case, the argument is, hey, we're only a couple percentage point market share of all of retail. You know, we're not even that dominant in, in online retail globally. You know, they parse the market in different ways to say we're, we're a small guy and Walmart is still bigger. So, you know, but there, but I, I think the, the, the volume of their argument shows that they are concerned. And I think Amazon's going to be spending more time and more resources kind of defending itself now from this antitrust attack in the months ahead. And that's what I wanted to ask you, Brad. It certainly does feel like the political winds are blowing, you know, much more against big tech. At the same time, I feel like there's a lot of big tech money flowing into Washington, much more than we used to see. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're now routinely, you know, the biggest spenders right alongside the the wireless carriers, the, the telecom companies, which have always had massive lobbying arms. Um, you know, it's, it's, they're in the position of being the kind of, uh, you know, the one thing that both parties can agree on. Now, <laughs> you know, whether that ever translates into legislation or, or, you know, solid action from the FTC or the DOJ, we'll see. But, you know, I kind of liken the tech companies are in this, this awkward position right now of sort of being our political referees. You know, so much discourse now happens, you know, on these sites. They're the kind of arbiters of articles and, and viewpoints that people read. And because our political environment is so sort of fractured and, and uh, uh, you know, sort of, sort of nasty now, as evidenced by everything that's been happening this week with the president's tweets. You know, there's, there's as, as like, just in like a competitive baseball game, when the umpire is getting criticized by both sides, the tech companies now are in this position where sort of everyone is teaming up against them and they're having to defend themselves. But what about... Europe, because I feel like Europe sets the tone often when it comes to technology right now. And we had what? Amazon, they settled a German antitrust probe, and now they've got an EU antitrust investigation um, that was announced this week against them. Where is Europe, though, in all of this? Because I feel like they have a much heavier hand when it comes to regulating yeah. tech. Well, Marguerite Vestager, the, the uh, competition commissioner, her, her term is ending, ending uh, this fall. And she's sort of made Amazon the last company on her agenda, you know, after really going 
going after Google and Facebook. You know, Amazon has had to settle a tax dispute um, in in Europe in the past for funneling all of its receipts through Luxembourg. It's had to settle an antitrust complaint around eBooks. And now the question that uh, Vestager is looking at is: Is it unfairly using the data from the third-party marketplace mm-hmm. to figure out what's popular and then selling it itself in the first-party business? And this is a complaint that a lot of these outside companies make: like, hey, you know, I was selling this uh, duffel bag to use a terrible example, and I was selling it on Amazon, and it was doing really well, and then suddenly Amazon's selling it itself, buying from my supplier or white-labeling it with its own brand. Uh, Amazon says it doesn't do that. The party line is they don't look at individual sales. But do we really know what's happening on the fifth floor of the building in Seattle where the marketplace guys are talking to the first-party guys? No, because Amazon's a very opaque company, and what Vestager is doing you know, and really, as you say, setting the stage for is kind of demanding that Amazon cooperate, show the internal data. How much of that are they using to figure out what to sell themselves? All right. So, Brad, let's wrap up by just talking a little uh, Jeff Bezos, because obviously his influence is only getting dramatically bigger, wider uh, as the years go on. Where does he sit now in your estimation, knowing him and his empire as well as you do, in sort of the the pantheon of business and, and in some ways, political leaders? Well, Jason, I mean, you know what my my answer is because I'm a you know I'm a Bezosologist, right? I, <laughs> I I'm working on another book, a sequel to my Amazon book, and you know I've always been fascinated by him. I mean, the remarkable story of the last ten years of Amazon is, you know, they went from a company that kind of routinely invented one thing after another, right? The, the books business to the general e-commerce business to the Kindle to AWS. And then over the last 10 years became a company that kind of invented a lot of things at the same time. Yeah. So he, he was able to create a culture that spawned uh, yeah, kind of multi-threaded invent- invention machine, and so you you have you know the Go store, which we talked about, and Alexa, and and new businesses in India and in the Middle East, and and the growth of fulfillment by Amazon and the warehouses and and robots and on and on and on. Space uh, and at the yeah, and at the same time, like today on Instagram. He posts this picture of himself standing atop, on top of the the domes uh, of their uh, the globes in their uh, in their headquarters. So he's on there with climbing gear, holding a, a sign that says "Thank you for Prime Day members," and it's just like remarkable. Like his image has evolved so dramatically from this kind of geek, geeky guy who sold books to now a guy who's standing on top of of globes and wind turbines, and and we see him on, on Wimbledon sitting behind the Royals. So his journey along with Amazon's journey, has been fascinating to watch as well. Yeah, I can't wait to see what the next decade holds. I can't Um, wait to read your new book. Exactly. All right, Brad Stone, always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg.